This morning we come to the end of this particular study of Philippians. And I say it that way because we have not come today to the end of the study of Philippians. Nobody ever preaches through books of the Bible and has any sense that you get to the end of it and say, well, now we know all there is to know about that particular book. We can move on to the next one. Such a person would be a fool. Because the Bible is so rich, the Bible is so full, the Bible is so eternal, it is inexhaustible. So we come to the end of this particular study. The truth is that we could go to next week and start all over again. And God would show us truths in this letter that none of us have seen before. Because God reveals his word to us by his spirit in that way. Anne has been leading a Bible study at the end of this uh, spring, and she chose to do it on Philippians. I told her that was an affront to me. I'm teaching Philippians on Sunday morning now. She's got to have this Bible study to get more. But it's wonderful because these ladies in that Bible study have seen things way beyond what I have been teaching here, and it's encouraged them and helped them. You never can get enough of the Word of God. Do you believe that? You can never read it enough. You can never study it enough. You can never pay enough attention to it. But for now, we have come to the end of this particular study. And at the end of this study, I want to go back to the beginning. And I want to go back to the beginning for two reasons. I want us to remember how this church began What God was doing when he brought to birth the church in Philippi, that's the first thing I want us to see as we begin this final pass through these final verses in Philippians. The second thing that I want us to see is one of the focal points of Philippians that is found in one word that Paul uses six times throughout the letter. This this letter doesn't contain but four chapters. So when you, when Paul, who has uh, no limits in his vocabulary, he was well-educated and well-versed and wrote extremely well, when he uses one word six times, then we ought to pay attention to that because it is a focal point of the letter that is brought to focus here in the last verses. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Paul was on his way to the churches that, He had served in Asia Minor. Paul had plans. And his plans were to follow the course, retracing his steps where he had been so that he could continue to strengthen the churches and offer encouragement to the churches and then go to other places in Asia Minor. Paul had his plans. And he was confident that his plans were from God. So he's following the course of God for his life. But one night while Paul was sleeping and thinking about the next stop in Asia Minor, he got a visit and that visit from, was from an angel and Paul was stopped in his tracks because he heard the messenger of God say, come over to Macedonia and help us. I'm sure Paul tossed and turned a bit. I'm sure Paul was disturbed because he had no plans to go to Macedonia, modern day Europe. 
Though that was not in his plans, but he was sure that the call was from God. Has that ever happened to you? You've got your plans. And you're absolutely confident your plans are from God. And God redirects your whole life. And he shows you that those plans you thought were so solid, so certain, so sure, so from God. Well, up to now they were. But he's about to redirect your life completely. He's about to send you on a course that you had not planned. He's about to redirect your steps. It's what Solomon said. We make our plans, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with that. We make our plans. But God orders our steps. One of the convictions to which every believer must come at some point in your life is that God's purpose is far better than your plans. And when God redirects your plans, you don't fight with him. You don't push back against him. You surrender. Because God's purpose for your life brings joy and peace and meaning and passion. God will often in the lives of his children, shatter our well-laid plans in order to show us his best for our lives. Paul would go into Macedonia. He would come to the city of Philippi. There was not even a synagogue in this city. There were only a few people there that were seeking God. One of them was a woman, a very wealthy woman named Lydia, and she was leading kind of a prayer meeting, a worship time outside the city by the riverbanks. And Paul and Silas and his team found them on the first Lord's Day that they were there, the first Sabbath they were there. And he joined them, and in the midst of it, he was asked to speak, and he proclaimed the gospel, and Lydia was saved. She opened her home to them. That became their source from which they were doing ministry in Philippi. And Paul would go into the marketplace, and one day in the marketplace, there was this slave girl that was being used by men. She was being trafficked by them, and they were making much profit from her. And they moved, they motivated her to speak against Paul and Silas, and Paul spoke the gospel to her. She was delivered from that demonic power in her life and was brought to faith in Jesus. Perhaps we don't know for sure. There were other people in the marketplace that day that heard the gospel. Paul became such a pest in Philippi that they threw him and Silas in jail. When they put Paul and Silas in jail, it turned into a place of worship for him. And they began to sing praises to God. And God shook the jail and set the prisoners free. And the jailer was about to kill himself. You remember that account? And Paul said, don't do that. We're all here and we're all safe. And the jailer and his whole house was saved. Maybe some of those prisoners in prison with Paul were saved. This is the first church in Philippi, a wealthy woman, a slave girl delivered from a demon, some people hanging around the marketplace with nothing to do, a jailer and his whole household, and maybe a few prisoners. This church plan had failure written all over it. But it succeeded because one man said, God, I'll go and do what you call me to do. 
I'll let go of my plans to follow your purpose. Can I ask you this morning, have you laid down all your plans at the feet of Jesus? Are you certain that you're on the course that God wants you on? Or are you willing even today to say, Lord, I'm comfortable where I am. I like my life as it is. But my plans, my dreams, my goals, they're all at your feet. Parents, have you done that? Or are you doing that for your children? Grandparents, are you doing that for your grandchildren? What are you praying for them? That they'll get a good education? That they found a good job, live in a nice home, two cars in the garage, prosper. And nothing wrong with praying for that unless you're not willing to say to God, God, they don't belong to me. They don't belong to me. They're yours. And if you call them to go to the hardest place on the earth to serve you and the gospel, they're not mine. They're yours. I want you to save them and send them and use them. This church in Philippi began as an unlikely church to make it. And though it had troubles, it was Paul's favorite church, I believe, because of its desire to be faithful to the gospel. And we see that in the second word that's here. It's the word that's found in verse 14, translated by the word share, yet it was kind of you to share. It is the word koinonia, the Greek word, the one that we Baptists love to use when we're having a meal together in conversation, and we say we love to have fellowship together because the Bible calls us to fellowship. That's not at all what that word means in the Bible. It can be a derivative meaning way down the stream. But Paul uses, uses the word here six times to get us to the course, to the source, the heart and soul of koinonia. You know what koinonia is? It's a group of believers sharing together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is children of God called together by the gospel and joining together in the work of the gospel. We find it in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Check me out. Go later today and look these verses up. See if it's there. These people in Philippi were brought together by the gospel. They were joined together by the grace of God in the gospel. It's found in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 10, at the middle of uh, the letter to the church in Philippi. That they were brought together for the work of the gospel means that they were going to suffer because those living for the gospel are going to be persecuted, maligned, mistreated. We're not going to be accepted by the world because we stand on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this church partnered with him in his suffering and suffered with him in the gospel. And then in chapter 4, verse 14 and verse 15, at the end of this letter... Paul uses the word again twice, twice at the beginning, twice at the middle, twice in the end, that this church shared with him in his trouble. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving. No church except you only. 
They partnered with him in the gospel. They partnered with him in his suffering. They partnered with him in supporting him when no other church would because they gave to him. This is real koinonia. This is what God produces in a church that's rooted and grounded in the word of God, seeking to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He produces real koinonia, where we join hands and hearts together in the work of the gospel, and we join hands and hearts together in our suffering, and we're honest with each other about our suffering and our trials, and we support one another and give what is needed to advance the gospel in the world. That's why Paul ends this letter the way he does. What he talks about at the end are three things. One of them I'm going to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. And I'm going to spend the bulk of our time on it because Paul spends the bulk of his time on it. It's giving. Paul is thankful for their giving. And then he brings greetings He's thankful for the family he shares in Philippi and beyond. And then he reminds us of how much we all need the grace of God. Paul says there's no church. There's no church that cared for him when he was in pain and prison like the church in Philippi. I want to read again what he says. It was kind of you, verse 14, to share, that is, to join me in my trouble. The word kind here means that they did what pleased God. We would say in the South, they they done good. They, They joined him in the midst of his trouble. And he points out their specific focus and their insulation and isolation from others. You Philippians, you in the church in Philippi, you know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church, it's strong in its negation. No church, not a single solitary church except the church in Philippi entered into partnership, koinonia with me, in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Why did no other church join in giving? Were they all broke? Why didn't they do it? Because showing up where Paul was in prison to bring him anything was risky. It was costly. It was dangerous. Right now in Afghanistan, Christians are being put in prison. They, they don't have food. They don't have clothing. They don't have Bibles. They don't have anything. If you're a Christian in their church and you go to that prison to visit them, to have fellowship with them, to partner with them, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be put in prison too, right? So what happens to many churches? We hide behind prayer. We'll pray for you. We hope for you the best, but we ain't showing up at the prison because if we show up at the prison, they will put us in prison. But the church in Philippi said, Paul is the one 
who was used of God to bring us to faith in Jesus, we will not abandon him. If they put us in prison, we go to prison with him. If they put us to death, we're going to glory. Being a Christian and living as a Christian is costly. And it must be expressed in the ways that we are called to express it. And one of those ways is giving. So they came to Paul when he was in prison and when he was outside of prison and they supported him. And the focus here, the focus here is is on money and material goods. We may not like that. Uh, We might not want to hear that. Here we go again, the preacher's preaching on giving. Look, I preach on giving when the text talks about giving, not otherwise. Whatever the text addresses, we need to address and we must hear. And Paul here concentrates on financial giving, material giving. He uses language here that's loaded with the terminology of the world of finance. Let me just show this to you. Even in Thessalonica, verse 16, you sent me help. That's a financial term. For my needs, that's a financial term. Once and again. Not that I seek the gift, a financial term, but I seek the fruit, a financial term, that increases to your credit, financial term. I have received full payment, financial term, and more, I am well supplied, financial term. All of these, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent Then he tells us what that gift was as an act of worship and God's response to it. So let's talk about giving a minute. Financial giving to and through our local church is not an option for a believer. Do you believe that? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a member of a local church, giving is not an option. It is a mandate of the Bible. We have a problem in our day because we have many preachers from many pulpits that are saying that tithing is legalistic and pharisaical and we should not teach people to tithe. We should just say to people, you give as you want to give. Now, what if my banker sitting back here who financed my home just said to me, hey, Whatever you want to give me every month on that loan I gave you, whatever. It's fine. I don't want to be legalistic about this stuff. I I don't want to be a Pharisee about this stuff. So whatever you want to give me. Now, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but my heart is deceitful and my heart is wicked. So I owe him. Let's just say I owe him. He's been really kind to me. I owe him $100 a month. But every month I say, you know, he said I could give him what I wanted. Do you think I'm going to give him more or less? Now, I know you're in church. You're supposed to give the Jesus answer. But what am I going to give him? More or less? Less. Because he said I can give him whatever I wanted to give him. I didn't have to give him according to the contract that we entered Many of our churches are struggling financially because that's being taught. And when we are sinful people, no matter how much we love Jesus, it's easier for us to compromise the Word of God than to commit to the Word of God. So let's look at that tithe. Go back to Genesis chapter 14. 
This is where we're introduced to it. It is a basic biblical concept. Tithe simply means tenth. A tenth of the resources that God has given us. You and I live in a monetary economy, so we think tithe in terms of money. They lived then in a barter economy. They thought sheep and cattle and fruit and olives and that kind of thing. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. This is Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, the strangely mysterious figure that seems to be a pre-incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he blessed him, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth, a tithe of everything. Do you know what a tithe is for you and me? It's one-tenth of the income with which God has blessed us. Let me tell you what it is. It is the minimal amount that every child of God gives to God through his church in order for the work of the kingdom of God to be accomplished. That's what it is. Now turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about giving. Now, he's given us the model prayer. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now my question of Jesus is, what does that look like in real life? If I'm really serious about praying that, our Father in heaven, let your name be holy, let your kingdom come on earth even as it is in heaven. What is his answer? I believe he answers us very clearly beginning in verse 19 of chapter 6. If you want to know Whether or not you're praying that prayer sincerely, look at your giving. Do not lay up for yourselves, he says in verse 19, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, listen to this, where your treasure is, that to which you give your life and your time and your energy and your money and your resources, what you treasure reveals your heart. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Use your spiritual eyes and look at your giving and your giving will reveal to you where you are in relationship to Jesus as Lord. It's not what you say. It's not what you announce. Turn to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament 
is a book of judgment on the people of God for what they have done in relationship to God and the prophet, the preacher, Malachi, God's messenger, that's what his name means, brings seven indictments against the people. I'm just going to tick off the seven indictments because I want you to see the seventh one because it is the it is the linchpin of all of them. It is the culmination of all of them. Number one, God indicts his people because they were worshiping God in the way they desire. Not the way God declares. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. We spent our whole Sunday school time this morning talking about worship. We were in 1 Samuel. The people of God in that day were led by false people, people who were false to God. They did not know the Lord. And worship in that day was all about them. Whatever the people desired, that's what the preachers did. That will always lead to corruption and collapse for the church. We don't worship God by what we desire. We worship God by what he declares in his word. He tells us exactly how he is to be worshipped. Number two, they made the place of worship less than sacred. They used it the way they wanted. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. Chapter 3, the word of God was not being taught. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the preachers were not preaching the word of God. They were preaching what would tickle the ears of the people. Number four, marriage and the marriage bed were dishonored and defiled. It was the number one moral symbol of a culture that had collapsed. Chapter 2, verses one, verses 13 through 16. Number five, there was no sense of sin. These people had lost all sense of sin. They made mistakes. They made missteps. They made misjudgments. They had even lost the word sin. That means in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, there was no fear of judgment. No fear of judgment. Now, Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, here is the linchpin. This is what held it all together. Verse 6, chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's the word for repentance. Repent. Repent, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Contributions can be translated offerings. If the tithe is the minimal amount, the 10% that we bring to God, what are offerings? It's what we give freely beyond the tithe to support the work of gospel ministry in the world. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe, the full tenth, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts. I will open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that 
I will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God, in his word, is absolutely serious about his people taking seriously the tithe as the minimal standard of our giving so as to demonstrate the validity of our relationship with God. My friend Tony Marita says, and I quote, to be in a church and not give to the church so that through the church the work of the gospel can be done is to be a consumer in that church or a customer or worse. It is to be a crook. We're robbing God. Sam Houston was quite the character in the 19th century He was a strong soldier. He was a powerful leader. His name's everywhere in San Antonio, Texas, Houston, Texas. He got saved, gave his life to Jesus. Whatever he did, he did all out. And when he got saved, he went all out. He became a part of a small church. The small church couldn't afford to pay the pastor. They needed a pastor. They couldn't afford to pay it. Sam Houston said to the church, I'll pay a salary. They said, you can't do that. He said, I can do that. I am going to do that. But that's a good bit of money. Sam Houston's reply was, when I got baptized, they baptized my wallet. Now, I know this is hard. I don't know who tithes in this church and who doesn't. I've never known who tithes in any church I've pastored. Don't want to know because I'm a sinner. If I knew you weren't giving the way the Bible teaches you should give, I probably would not like you. And that's wrong. That's sinful. And I know that. So there are people in this church that tithe. This church is a very generous church. I praise God for that. And there are people who don't, I'm sure. There are some of you sitting here who may have never, you're a Christian. You never heard this before. This is new to you. And your response may be, well, I can't tithe. My response to you would would be, well, maybe you can't right now because you're upside down. You're just upside down. So go home today and look around at your life and see why you're upside down. Some of you may be in such deep debt because you have tried to keep up with the Joneses or whoever we're keeping up in these days, and you can't do it and you shouldn't be trying. So there may be some things in your life that you need to get rid of so you can be more obedient to God. But start somewhere. When I became a Christian, I knew zero about tithing. Unfortunately for me, I knew a girl. I met a girl, loved a girl, told her on the first date she would be my wife, whose daddy made her tithe from the time she started getting an allowance. Get a dollar, how much of it goes to the church? Ten cents. Get $5, now we're getting out of my math ability. 10%. We've tithed from the time we started our marriage. When we were in seminary, we went through a time when we were hurting financially. And in order to eat, honestly, in order to eat, we had to, we, we stopped tithing. You know what she did? She made a list every Sunday 
of our tithe. And when we got financially better, we gave all that money where it belonged. There are people in this church who can tell marvelous stories. Jimmy Miller married Gloria, Gloria Tithe, from the time she was a teenager. Jimmy never heard of tithing. He thought it was the most horrible thing he ever heard because with that money you can do so many wonderful things. She kept tithing. She taught him to tithe. But they had a, some of you don't even know what this is, they had a black and white TV. I'm not talking about the exterior color. They got two channels, six and 12. Y'all remember that? But everybody, Jim and you, had that new thing that had just come out, and it was so wonderful. They had a color TV. He was going to get a color TV. He told Gloria he had figured it out. If they didn't tie for X number of weeks, they could buy that color TV. She said to him, we'll live with a black and white TV until we die, but we will tithe. And he watched God bless him. They got a color TV. Praise God. I was in their house not long ago, and they got a big old color TV now. Now, God doesn't promise to prosper you financially if you tithe. I can tell you what he does promise. He promises that he will give you joy. You know why? Because when you're not tithing, you know it. And deep inside, you know you're robbing God, and you don't want to rob God. You want to delight in God. So start somewhere. If you're not doing anything, start somewhere. And trust God to bring you to the place where you can give the way the Bible commands us to give. Well, finally, Paul greets. He greets three groups. He greets the saints, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He, greet, he, greets, he, he greets the siblings, brothers and sisters, those who are with me, they greet you, and all the saints greet you. And then he, I love this, he, agree, he greets those of Caesar's household. Paul, Paul's under arrest. He's preaching the gospel. Those people who are serving him, and this is what this refers to, servants from Caesar's household who are bringing him food, who are bringing him water, who are bringing him change of bed sheets and so forth. Those servants are getting saved and serve Caesar's household is full of Christians. The man who hates Christians and puts them in jail now has employees in his employ who are becoming Christians and being witnesses to the gospel. He greets them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And whether you tithe or don't tithe, whether you say about this message, I don't believe that stuff you just taught, or you accept it and under conviction, at the end of the day, what we all need, right, is the grace of God. Paul says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with what? Your spirit. Why doesn't he say with you? Because God's spirit bears witness with my spirit. God's spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are who? You're a child of God. And your spirit is strengthened by the spirit of God. What's happening to your body every day? 
I'm 69 plus. You think I would stand up here and say I've never felt stronger physically in my life. My body's fading. But there's more of the energetic presence of the power of the Spirit of God in my spirit and with my spirit than I've ever known in my life. Because the Spirit is being renewed every day. So friends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together today. And we pray your blessings on whatever of this word from Philippians finds its way into the hearts of people in this church. May you do your work through your word to continue to change us and to grow us and to make us more and more like Jesus. In his name, amen.